Hi, friends, and welcome to a very exciting episode 18 of the End of Sport podcast. Today, I had the very, very great pleasure of talking to really the eminent, critical, popular voice in the arena of uh, sport, justice, social inequality, the great Dave Zirin of the nation. Uh, and um, it's not our longest interview, but I think that uh, it's really illuminating to hear him really uh, appraise this moment of um, radical resistance to white supremacy and police violence and, and how that's permeated the world of sport and how the world of sport uh, and specifically the athletes, the black athletes in the world of sport have been have really already been prepared to embrace this moment and, and are affecting it in really powerful and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully transformative ways. So I hope you enjoy the interview. And uh, just before I, um, I cut to it, I also want to just point out that in the very near future, um, we are going to have uh, what I'm really an episode I'm really excited about in which we delve into two films. The classic documentary, Hoop Dreams, and the very recent Netflix film, High Flying Bird. So for any listeners who kind of haven't had a chance to watch those films previously, but want to get themselves prepped for that podcast, so it kind of makes sense and is a little more interesting than just hearing us thrown on about films that um, you're not familiar with, uh, I would encourage you to, um, to watch them both in advance uh, so that you can enjoy that show. We have uh, a truly an incredible guest who's going to be joining us to speak about that. And you are not going to want to miss what uh, that individual has to say. So uh, just to wrap up, let me say, um, please follow the, the podcast on Twitter at End of Sport Pod, on Instagram, the same. Uh, email us at um, theendofsport at gmail.com if you feel the, 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 the open desire to do that. And um, please ultimately just subscribe to the show. Uh, keep listening. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Um, and solidarity to all of you out there. Dave Zirin is sports editor at The Nation, host of the Edge of Sports podcast, and author of a mind-boggling 10 books on the politics of sport, including, with recent guest Michael Bennett, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, What's My Name, Fool? Sports and Resistance in the United States, Welcome to the Terror Dome, The Pain, Politics, and Promise of Sports, Brazil's Dance of the Devil, The World Cup, The Olympics, and the Fight for Democracy, and most recently, Jim Brown, Last Man Standing. Dave, it's a huge honor to welcome you to the show. No, it's a thrill to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, listen, we, I want to really get into this in a minute. But before we do, I want to ask you the question we're asking everyone since we started this show, because we are in such um, almost unprecedented and tumultuous times. How are life, the pandemic, and now this kind of potential revolution treating you uh, in the Washington, D.C. area? Well, you know, th things are definitely interesting. I think like a lot of people, we're judging on a daily basis demonstrations with our ability to also try to stay healthy. I mean, I've got a, a 15 year old who wants to be down there in the mix. Um, my partner is a, a union militant in the Washington Teachers Union. Very proud of her. Yeah. Uh, so she's in the mix. And, 
you know, and, and so, you know, I just try to help as much as I can, like in terms of honestly helping at home, doing my writing, um, to make sure that the people in my household who want to be out there in the mix can be out there. And then when I can pick my spots, I roll through. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. That's great. Um, so, you know, I cannot help by starting with just sort of a general appraisal of your takes on what to make of the way in which um, these rebellions and the pandemic, et cetera, um, are kind of intersecting with the world of sport, which is obviously your wheelhouse. Um, so given that you've spent a significant portion of your career engaging the specific question of athlete political activism, um, resistance at a time and in a cultural arena that were frankly for a long time fairly allergic to this sort of notion of politics. Obviously, the sport was always political, but like there was this general popular cultural notion that sport was not an appropriate site for politics. Um, that has obviously dramatically changed in the last decade, uh, particularly the last four, maybe five years. So first, I'd love to ask, how significant a role would you say that athletes and sport have played in the movement for Black Lives and the genesis of the uprising we are witnessing today? That is sort of before we get to the role of athletes today, to what extent has sport helped to create the conditions that make these current rebellions possible? I would say it's not really sport. It's the black athlete. That's what's been the, the deciding okay. factor. And the black athlete, I'm paraphrasing Howard Bryant's book, The Heritage. I mean, this was and is and really has been for a century uh, the most well-known black employee in the United States has been the black athlete in terms of the social class by which many of them come from and in terms of which the microphone that they have. And that's why their platform, as you referenced, has been policed so heavily over the decades, precisely because they have that kind of megaphone. And to see the way the black athlete has used that megaphone at this particular moment, from the NBA to the NFL to the soccer players to even NASCAR, for goodness sakes, has yeah. uh, been absolutely historic. We are in rare territory in terms of the collision of politics and sports. It's almost like these are the children of Muhammad Ali, and he had uh, quintuplets to the nth degree. Yeah, um, that's a great way of putting it. So then, um, and I mean, you're gesturing to this already, but as you see this unfolding in front of us, I think to me, the kind of obvious and critical follow-up question then is, what role then do athletes have, and especially as you say, black athletes, but maybe not only black athletes now, because of course you've been talking about who has built to this moment. Uh, and I certainly think it's very fair to say that black athletes are responsible and not the world of sport at large, uh, who have mostly tried oh, to suppress. Yeah, if I could just jump in. Yeah, please. You're right to say that there are some white athletes have made some significant comments, like Baker Mayfield, um, quarterback of the Cleveland Browns, said today that he'd be kneeling. Same with J.J. Watt, Houston, Houston Texans, um, to just two examples, Carson Wentz and some of his comments. But their outspokenness, I would argue, has been driven by the pressure that they feel from their black teammates who are saying to them, sometimes explicitly, hey, you know, there's all this talk all the time that we're some kind of family. Well, the black members of your family are really upset right now. And by you be being silent or dismissive, of our concerns shows the whole family rhetoric to be a lie. And that's been a real social pressure on white athletes to, to step up and speak out. Yes, absolutely. And we've seen that, I mean, just across leagues, obviously like NASCAR is an incredible example. And, and maybe that's something to talk a little bit about because frankly, NASCAR is the site that I'm having most difficulty wrapping my head around. Now, granted, I'm not 
really an expert in NASCAR particularly, but I certainly do not see it as a site that would be likely to kind of embrace this moment in part because for me, and please like correct me, challenge me if you see this differently, but my worry in, in some of what's unfolding, not in terms of like what some of these athletes are saying, I want to make that clear distinction. And I think you made that distinction before by saying, listen, if we're going to give credit in this situation, it's to black athletes historically, it's not to sports, right? Or things that have happened in the world of sport, because if we're talking about sport in a more broader sense. We're also talking about the institutions in the world of sport, right? The leagues, the teams, uh, the corporations like Nike. Um, and, and the reason I want to underline that is for me, worries that emerge out of that are the ways in which then this kind of very genuine um, and brave activism is constantly being commodified and appropriated, right? And I mean, Nike is, the clear, is a clear example of that. We don't have to belabor that point. But I mean, what I'm seeing is this Nikeification then, right, across all of these leagues. And then we have like this NASCAR moment, which that's what, what doesn't make sense to me with NASCAR. It's what I'm trying to build to is in a lot of these other contexts, I feel there's like a market, right, for um, in this moment now, like there's a, there's a clear, it seems like a kind of popular cultural embrace of some form of anti-racism. Like we can absolutely talk at length about how authentic that is for whom and how. Um, but, you know, like at least even in a tokenistic way, that's kind of where the wind is blowing right now. So it makes sense. Like, I mean, for an NBA, the NFL, um, leagues like that, it seems like a no-brainer. But not so much for NASCAR necessarily if we're talking about the market. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. Um, first, I mean, to your first point, like, of course, the leagues are going to commodify this moment. They don't have a choice, partly to head off a black rebellion inside their sports, which the NBA is experiencing as we speak. Uh, and, but, but there's also um, the issue of trying to do what they call on Madison Avenue, woke branding, woke marketing, woke capitalism to show that because the attitudes of people under 30 years old in this country are just profoundly to the left of older generations. And so they're, they know that and they know that their ability to connect with that audience um, is really about the future of their sport. Um, so it's not surprising. That's, that's capitalism in a nutshell. Um, but to get to the second point about NASCAR, I've, I've, you know, done my, due diligence on NASCAR over, over the times. And, you know, there's always been a real push and pull in NASCAR between catering to its Southeastern Dixie base and its desire to go national with the stock cars, if not international, always the tension. And it's always been, then there's been a belief in the higher echelons of NASCAR that the Confederate flag waving, um, hard right wingers, um, are holding them back, making them look like this citadel of white supremacy that's standing strong against the black sports, like an alternative in that way. And that, of course, is part of its appeal uh, to white America. But like I said, there are people in NASCAR who don't want that, who actually think it's holding them back, that it's a fetter. And I think at this moment, what they saw was an opportunity to say, okay, let's really try to do it the way we've always wanted to do it and finally break with the past. And so we'll see if it works. One thing's for certain is that if they're going to really follow this path, it's going to take the drivers pushing for them to do so. And the early returns on that are very good because uh, no one no one needed Dale Earnhardt Jr. to say, I will listen, Black Lives Matter. Right. Uh, and yet he did. And, um, you know, and a lot of this is because the – I mean, talk about a lot of weight on somebody's shoulders. The one frickin' full-time uh, black driver at all of NASCAR, Bubba Wallace, 
has been agitating in recent weeks to remove the Confederate flag. And so this, and he drives a car that says Black Lives Matter on each side. Um, so this, this is someone who we should keep an eye on and give credit to as far as an athlete having a transformative effect on the culture. That's a great point. Beautifully put. Um, well, then just maybe I would actually kind of now, now that we're going, I, I kind of want to tour around a little bit in some of the other leagues um, because you gestured right now to the NBA, right? And what's unfolding in front of us. Uh, and I think what you're referring to, and maybe you even know more than me at this moment, but m my understanding was at least that um, yesterday there was a phone call with at least 80 plus players on it uh, that seemed to be led by Kyrie Irving and others. Um, you know, pushing back on two fronts was my understanding. One that, and I think that this is terrific, and we didn't, and we have not really seen this articulated um, in a lot of the public discourse around sport in this moment. You know, the players consciously saying, "We actually don't want to distract you from what's taking place in the streets right now." Right? This is a moment of resistance for Black Lives, and the last thing we want is white people to just sit down, crack a beer in front of a game, um, and forget it all. Right? Like let it let it go away. Um, and I mean, I think that's actually a really um, insightful critique of what is very likely to happen if leagues like the NBA return. So that was one point. And then the other point, which is another one that we've been really pushing on this show from the start, you know, is our fundamental concern for athlete well-being in the face of health and um, occupational safety issues. And clearly a pandemic is a rather large threat to um, that well-being. And I think that's another thing that these players are worried about. And they're also worried about the fact that they haven't had a chance to properly prepare themselves to return to action, right? And that'll be a problem across all these leagues. Um, what about other injuries, right? Because injury is always a problem in high-performance sport. Um, and it can have a devastating impact on players. So uh, I think as a consequence of all those factors, right, there's a, not, there's a significant constituency in the NBA, it seems now, even though, by the way, we were, in my opinion, we were sold a line, even within the last week, the players were all on board with restarting up and that this was really a collaborative effort between players in the league, which always seemed a little fishy to me. And now it seems like some cracks are being exposed. Yeah, no, no doubt. Top to bottom. Um, I interviewed a former Chicago Bulls player, Craig Hodges earlier this week. And, um, I asked him if he would play right now, if he was in the NBA and he said, no, I wouldn't play. And I said, why not? And he said, because they killed my brother. Speaking, of course, of George Floyd. And that's all he really had to say. And so there's, you know, Kyrie's gotten some criticism, you know, for being Kyrie. He's seen as a quirky person. But for also saying that, oh, he's been on calls in the past, though, and his only worries were, would he have access to a sauna if they were in a quarantine situation? But my take it is like, you know, look, people, you know, like Dave Chappelle said, the streets are talking. And, you know, the streets could have talked to Kyrie Irving and changed his thinking about this. I think it's a very principled and very, very defensible position. And that's beyond the, the health issues that you mentioned. The health issues are alone um, enough to absolutely understand, let us understand that the league should not be rushing to reopen. So, you know, I'm in the camp of George Carl, the former coach who just said, you know, let's just put an asterisk on this season and go to next year. It's just not, I mean, it would, I mean, imagine if there would be an outbreak in sunny Orlando, you know, and these players being quarantined. I mean, in, it's a demeaning way for the greatest basketball players on earth to apply their trade. And they're doing so just for pure cold cash considerations that are frankly less of a concern to many of the players in the NBA than they are to ownership right now. And so 
I wouldn't be surprised if Kyrie gets a legitimate healing on this, uh, even if it does put him at odds with uh, LeBron James, which is not a small thing. No, no, it's not a small thing at all. And, and I, the one thing I just add to that, because I think that people were really missing this point in some of the conversation, uh, as if you know everyone was kind of mutually consenting to this arrangement. It's very clear the league is going is going to refuse to pay. They're going to essentially furlough any players that don't play the games, right? So when it comes to the health standpoint, it's not like they're having like a kind of friendly conversation. Does this seem like the right thing? No, they're literally threatening them, right? Like you either play or you don't get paid. You lose your job for this year, um, which is you know a very coercive dynamic in my estimation. Um, just just to jump to the NFL for a minute, uh, what do you make of the the incredible video that the players put together? Uh, I'm, I'm losing track of time now, but I feel, I feel like it was last week or so. Goodell's immediate response um, and kind of where Kaepernick fits in all that. Well, I mean, it, it really starts with the NFL's original statement, which was so tepid and lukewarm, you couldn't boil an egg in it. And then the <laughs> player stepped forward and said, well, it was really a response by the players to that tepid first uh, statement. And I think the players' viral video scared the holy shit out of Roger Goodell because of the players it included, like Patrick Mahomes and Saquon Barkley, two of the young faces of the league, and because of their message, which was, I mean, God, you've been waiting for, like, uh, the union, for example, to be this direct. I mean, they just put it very directly to the NFL about how they've been wrong on questions of race and racism. and. The NFL responded, I mean, Roger Goodell practically responded uh, um, on one knee uh, in his response. He admitted to wrongdoings. He even said they were wrong to uh, oppose um, players protesting before the games. Now, there's still a lot of disingenuity in both Roger Goodell and the National Football League, um, not the least of which is, as you referenced, I mean, Colin Kaepernick still being out of work shows it as being very false. Um, and also not one franchise owner has stepped forward and endorsed what Roger Goodell has had to say. Um, let me think, maybe one has, maybe, but I'm, I'm not even sure about that. You know, but it, it, they've been very noticeable by their silence. Um, and now Trump is punching back at them uh, today, actually, as we're doing this recording. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't yeah, see that. He, he, he wouldn't watch NFL games if players took a knee. Um, and you know, and the inference being, I'll get half the country to not watch your sport. And, um, and, the, and the other thing that the NFL is off saying is that they're going to give $250 million, uh, over the course of a, some number of years that works out to between seven and 800 grand per team per year. So we're, we're not talking the mammoth investment that it first, no. like. um, but the part that, that I keep harping back to is if the NFL really wanted to take an anti-racist posture, you know, all, all like these videos of Roger Goodell wringing his hands and pledging this obscene amount of money, which isn't even that much money relative to the people pledging it, you know, it could be so simple. I mean, they could change the name of the Washington football team, yes. Kaepernick, and they could sign some damn black coaches. You know, you do like that's how you show in practice that your league is making a turn away from from an incredible history of systemic racism. But they're they're not willing to show that. And part of it is that Roger Goodell, at the end of the day, is just a flat catcher. 
you know, he's not Adam Silver with the authority and the respect to call up a team and say, hey, you really need to sign this guy Kaepernick and then getting it done. That's not Roger Goodell's job description and that's not who he is. No, that's great. He's basically the NCAA in that sense, right? Standing yeah. in for institutions or owners in this case of other teams, uh, of his teams. That, that's, that's a great point. Um, and, you know, the thing that you made me think as well is how easy it really would be for them to make the moves you described, right? Like, it's not like when we start to talk about things like um, defunding and abolishing the police and the carceral state, um, I agree with those demands, but they're big demands. It's significant, right? Like it would require very dramatic structural change in society. And you can see why people find that daunting. Um, But if we're talking about renaming a football team, we're talking about hiring one single player and also hiring from a huge pool of incredibly talented candidates, some coaches who have been willfully denied opportunities, like that is a really easy fix that would have material, that would make a material difference, I think, and actually satisfy people, as you're saying. And it kind of feels to me, as I'm thinking through your point, like it's reminiscent of the fact that Trump scheduled his rally in, T- in Tulsa, right, on Juneteenth. It's, it's on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very willful way of spitting in the eye of a certain constituency. Um, it, it's, it seems fair to look at it in those terms, right? Like, there's no excuses here. There's no, we didn't realize, oh, I'm sorry, it was too difficult. No, this is racism in practice, and it's very conscious and very overt. That's exactly what we're talking about here. And the fact that you haven't had the franchise owners stepping up to do something about the racism in their league, I mean, says it just speaks so loudly. Uh, to what we're up against and how institutionally slow the NFL ever would be to turn unless there was some kind of social pressure being put on them. And it, from what it appears, I mean, taking the last 15 years or post 9-11 period as any evidence is that, you know, fans turning away really isn't going to happen. Sponsors turning away really isn't going to happen. What's going to make it hum is if the players themselves stand up and to see them doing that, to see them exercising their incredible power, which again is not unlike the NCAA athletes who right now are flexing their power. Yes, uh, Texas. Shows in Texas in particular, but it shows we've turned the corner, I think. And it's what's, you know, of course there's going to be a backlash. We all know that. But the question is going to be whether they can put the wine back in the bottle. Because once these players have a taste of freedom, of true freedom in the context of sports, It'll be very difficult to turn back the clock. Uh, and that's, that's the hope anyway. Yeah, listen, that's exactly the question I was going to ask you next. Because it does, like, it feels like this powerful moment filled with potential. Um, you know, we, we see Minneapolis literally talking about dismantling the police force um, after a police station was actually burned down. Part of Seattle is literally occupied territory right now. Um, you know, it seems like there is so much potential, um, but at the same time, we have this the, the Trump regime, um, a sort of neo-fascist state, as um, Cornell West put it. Uh, and we have, you know, this is why I keep coming back to it. We have these leagues and this sort of sports media industrial complex that is so gleefully willing to commodify it at every turn and appropriate if it continues running money through the industry. Um, but on the other side, aligned against that, as you have said, we have athletes, right? And that's, I mean, that's always, that's the kind of the point of this podcast is like, we want to talk about athletic labor um, and um, 
aspects of the experience of athletes that that aren't always discussed, right? Because they're seen as celebrities and entertainers and not as workers, which they are. And and what you're pointing to is the fact that in this moment, they're really embraced in a lot of ways, they are embracing that identity as workers um, across all of these different mm-hmm. sites. But um, and I mean, like nothing, nothing excites me more than when I see that in the NCAA, because those students are in my classroom um, and I see the conditions that they're exposed to. Uh, and you know, it's, it's devastating. And especially in the context of football, which is what we were talking about, right? And what you were gesturing to, right? An industry that has systematically sacrificed the bodies of its workers um, at the college level, at the NFL level, and in order to build to those levels, as people like Kathleen Bushinsky have very clearly pointed out, right? We're doing this to our children to build the athletes that will ultimately get to those levels. Um, and it's all fundamentally racialized, right? Because this operates within the context of, a, of structural racism, of foreclosed opportunities. Um, Harry Edwards just years ago said that he thought the NFL would become a primarily black league, ultimately, specifically because of the fact that like, who else, like, not because of anyone is a dupe in this situation, but because a society that so fundamentally and systematically denies opportunities to black people the sacrifice of one's brain with the knowledge we have, like that becomes not a rational choice for a lot of people because they see that like the cost benefit analysis is just not worth it. But when we're talking about people who are so systematically marginalized and denied opportunities, right? It's actually not irrational to play football even under those circumstances. Um, Yeah. You know, and that's all stuff we have to worry about. So, But my question here, I know, and I go on and on, but like what I really am trying to ask you is, where, like, if you're, if you're being as realistic as possible, where do you see it going, if you have to guess? Yeah, I mean, I, don't, well, I just I can only look at where it's trending, and it's trending more towards player power and player empowerment. You know, it started in the NBA, and you see it something that's beginning to flower out into other leagues. I think you'll just see a lot more uh, control over the labor of the athlete by the athlete themselves. Uh, I think that's where this thing is headed. And um, I think it's something we should welcome because it, it, it's quite the, the public example that gets blared out to everybody uh, when athletes are forced to really act like part hero, part chattel, particularly in the NCAA model. Absolutely. And, and maybe, maybe the NBA is kind of, I mean, the NBA itself will be changing. But one reason why we're seeing what we're seeing with Kyrie Irving and companies is that, that we've seen this movement in the NBA already, right? We've seen players seize power um, and it puts them in a position to wield that power in a moment like this. So certainly I would see that as a pretty positive model. Okay, so just to shift gears for a moment, one thing I really want to talk about now is sort of your own life and career in, in sport and politics. Um, and, and the question is, it's always interesting to us when we talk to folks who are critical about sport is how how one reconciles right the tension between you know loving the games in various ways as fans as participants etc um and being deeply critical of them so i'm just sort of curious at this point in your life right like how possible is it for you to still be a fan um has your kind of relationship to sport changed over time uh well no actually it hasn't really changed that much it's definitely aided in the present tense by having a 12 year old sports obsessed kid with a very sweet left-handed jump shot (laughs) and I coach his team. And so that allows me to stay connected on a, on a very childlike level, I guess I'd call it. But that I feel like is really important 
um, that I feel like is really important because it reminds me of what I actually want to save about sports. Um, it reminds me that sports is something worth fighting for and worth reclaiming, not rejecting. Um, and so it is possible, I think, to see and experience and indulge in the beauty of sports while also, you know, staying very connected with the socio-political ramifications of sports and the importance of the empowerment of the athlete. You know, all of that is very important. Um, and it's just about we, we have to be, you know, as sports fans, we're able to memorize all kinds of incredible data, statistics, advanced statistics. Uh, we're able to memorize the entirety of the backs of baseball cards. Um, if we do that, if we have the capacity for that, then we also have the capacity to be critical sports fans and recognize what we like and don't like about sports so we can challenge it to change. Is coaching hard? Because that's one thing I find part like a particularly almost contradictory place to occupy, given that so much of the culture of elite sport really wants to instrumentalize the athlete's body, right? And turn it into something that's just a winning machine, basically, right? At the expense of sort of the humanity within that. Like that's, sport does not have to be that, but we, are, we have a sports system that wants everything to become kind of part of that process. Is that hard to balance? No, not if you go into it with uh, some, some intentionality as far as the kind of coaching that you want to do. Um, it helped a lot that I, you know, I've, there's a great uh, writings by a guy named Joe Ehrman who used to play for the uh, Baltimore Colts, and he runs something called the Positive Coaching Alliance. And uh, he says that there are two kinds of coaches, the transactional and the transformational. What you just described is really the transactional coach the person who tries to get as much out of a player as possible for the purposes of their own satisfaction uh, or their own ego. Uh, the transformational coach is somebody who looks at sports as a way to actually change the way kids interact with each other, change the way they look at the world. Uh, if you have white players challenging racism, if, you have, if you're coaching a male team about fighting sexism, um, you, know, so you, you include those messages so it doesn't become this kind of walled off space of toxic masculinity. You can do all those things as a coach. I mean, it takes some planning and some intentionality, but I, I think it's, um, I think it's very important. And I think we need to have uh, more coaches, like more people who are conscious sports fans who actually like get into coaching, apply to do it, get involved in it, get their hands dirty in it so they can see firsthand. Cause it's a lot easier to say than to do. And I'm a million miles from perfect at it or even, you know, sometimes even good at it, but at least approaching it from that perspective uh, makes a big difference. Yeah, that's great. Um, would you say that there are some transformational coaches in professional sport, in college sport? Um, that's a great question. Um, I, I certainly don't know about professional sport or college sports. Because, you know, I was thinking that the names like, you know, who you've talked to, and I, and I know that like you've, you've been writing about this recently, you know, the folks like Popovich and Kerr and company, like those are the kind of obvious names that one might try. I feel like Pete Carroll, um, <laughs> he positions himself that way, but he also seems to be palling around with Jordan Peterson. So I take that with a grain of salt. The last line I want to go, want to go down here is, I, want, I, I, have to find, I have to ask you, how challenging has it been to carve out the incredible career you've had, given that there's, you know, there, were, there was really no one else doing the kind of work you're doing. Like there, there, are, there are people doing it now, but you know, when I first encountered your work, there just weren't other people. 
how receptive have the institutions you've written for been to your approach historically? You know, you've written for Sports Illustrated. That's where I first, I think that's probably where I first encountered your work. Um, how much backlash have you faced for your approach to sport? That's really kind of you, everything you're saying. I appreciate it very much. Um, I mean, it it's, hasn't been easy, I, um, but, you know, it's like you, you fight for the spaces that, that you can inhabit. So, you know, if there's a chance to be on an ESPN, you know, I'm going to do it. Am I going to work for ESPN? Never. Um, but if I have the opportunity to use their platform to elevate a critical voice, then I'm going to do it. Um, you know, and it's, it's meant, you know, just typical internet shit talking, certain doors that get closed. But, you know, that stuff doesn't mean, mean a lot, especially um, I've been very, very fortunate, extremely fortunate and extremely lucky to have a place like uh, The Nation magazine, which hopefully won't be going out of business in the next two months. Oh, uh, I hope so. Unlike so much that's out there right now for journalists. And that's, you know, then they've never asked me not to write something. They've never tried to spike a story. So it's, it's a pretty unique place to be. And that's made, I think, a huge difference in terms of me having some longevity for doing this. Well, and, you know, we just we just actually our last episode was with uh, Shireen Ahmed, uh, and she specifically referred to you as a mentor. And so, I, I mean, that makes me want to ask, do you feel that's part of your role, given the context I described, the fact that like there was so little, um, you know, pop, there were so few popular interventions. There were some academic interventions, certainly, but they're not popular interventions in the conversation about how sport um, should be viewed through a political lens, how it was a site of social inequality and injustice and how that was the way we should approach sport. Um, and, you know, as a consequence of your work, I know that academics use your work all the time, right? We assign your articles because your uh, approach to the issues of the day allows students, right, a, a window into a different kind of approach to the things that they love and care about and think about, but don't always think about critically. So have you, have you kind of consciously, deliberately tried to I guess, open that window a little bit wider for others? Definitely. Definitely, definitely. Because, I mean, it's, there's a lot. Like, there's, the, the point is never to do it by yourself. I mean, you know, the, the point is to build a community. And anytime there's an opportunity to talk to somebody amazing like Shireen, I'm going to take that opportunity. Because uh, it, it, it has such potential to make these kinds of critical voices um, exponential. And if there's a bigger pond, then there's more room for me to swim. So, you know, it's done out of uh, self-interest also. It's like, it, it does me favors to have the arguments elevated. I mean, as we're having this conversation, Marina Dowd, I just saw her column in the Sunday New York Times is about Popovich. And yes, I saw that, yeah. I had a couple people text me like, ooh, Maureen Dowd, she stole your, haha, because I did this interview with Popovich yeah, yeah, yeah. a week and a half ago or something. But it's like, I mean, to me, that's awesome. Even though I didn't even like the article very much, I thought, <laughs> like, wow, Popovich is, getting, is the subject of a Dowd column in the New York Times. And she's like quoting him at length, just tearing down the NFL and tearing down Trump. And it's just like, this is, this is what we need. Any more of this. Awesome. Well, on that note, solidarity to you, my friend, Dave Zirin. Uh, and thanks so much for all your work. Thanks for coming on the show, Ma.
No problem. I'm sorry I'm uh, tired voiced. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Podcast.